Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, we're, we have a guest today that all of you will find very relevant. Business owners and those of you who are self-employed will find this especially interesting, but all of you as are facing the same fundamental problems, and we want to talk a little bit about those as they relate to our occupations, our careers, our businesses. You know, how do you transition as you get past that age 60 or so and you start thinking about doing something else in your life, we have an authority today who actually focuses on that very question with his clientele. And it was kind of unique. I didn't know there was such a person around because it's kind of specialized, It's right? very specialized. So why don't you introduce our guest today? I would Jill. be happy to. We have Daryl Tegmeyer. He's a certified financial planner, a certified exit advisor, and the owner of Epoch Family Wealth. Your first time on the show, Daryl. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure Welcome. to be here. So, Daryl, l- let's talk about, you know, this is very specialized, as we said. What made you go into this type of financial planning? Because, quite frankly, I had never heard of this type of mm-hmm. financial planning before. Yeah. And it was something, uh, so I grew up in a family-owned business. Uh, my father had a construction company that he had started, and he was in the military. He was in the Army, actually stationed at Fort Riley. Oh, uh, really? Uh, before he started uh-huh. it. And um, so, always had employees. He always had three employees, at least. And oftentimes, his receivables were not keeping pace with his payables. And so, growing up, it was the ups and downs, the, you know, feast and famine of family-owned business. So growing up in that, I was like, I am never going to be a business owner. I disregarded business. I'm like, this is the worst possible thing anybody could do with their life. Um, As I've gotten older, I've taken an oppositional perspective to that to say, no, this is one of the biggest gifts, you know, a person can give their family. And so for me, the focus really came to working with business owners because mm-hmm. it was in my DNA, and I underappreciated that growing up. But just seeing how much business owners, in my particular case, need help navigating transition points in their lives. And so, again, a lot of what we're going to talk about today, or some of what we're going to talk about, is having purpose You know, beyond just vocation, having purpose beyond just what the business means mm-hmm. to them. But it is a unique it is a unique clientele. And, and I do think that people who have careers or professions, especially business owners, where they've defined themselves that way. Mm-hmm. And business owners are the worst, mm-hmm. meaning you, you're you thinking about it. You're married day, to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, day and night. It yeah. it's never completely leaves you. Mm-hmm. And the idea of separating yourself from that mm-hmm. is really difficult for many people to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but – but we know that it's healthy that they be able to make this transition. Yes. And, and I think that there have been studies where they've indicated that, that people who, who continue to define themselves entirely in those terms, they often have increasing stress as they age. Mm-hmm. Um, it causes family problems because that time never comes when those things that were dreams are never right. realized. and. Mm-hmm. And then there's the friction with kids who are waiting in the wings mm-hmm. to step into the, the family the role, business, the family yeah. business. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. that conflict. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's lots of reasons to transition. Do you does this conversation come up a lot with your clientele? Yeah, and and mostly because uh, in a very deliberate way, I chose to just work with business owners starting in 2017 when I launched launched Epoch. Prior to that. Uh, for a decade, a business partner and I worked with uh, a smattering of, of various people. You know, they might be executives, uh, maybe just mom and pops, uh, you know, doing their financial Professionals. Plan. Yeah, professionals. Um, but business owners, again, just because of the resonance. And so deselecting other people so I could focus on the business owners because they do have a unique journey uh, in that it is so intertwined with who they are as a person. And they can't see themselves outside of that, not only in their family structure, but also in society, in their friendships. You know, they're used to people coming to them and asking them for things. And, uh, you know, so they can be this presence in the community, this positive presence. Well, if all of a sudden they're not the owner of ABC company anymore, who are they? And so it is just one facet of the entire planning, but it is so critical because if you don't get that right, to your point, Joe, you'll never get to the place where you get to that transition and never get to the place where you get to that transition and have it be a very positive thing. Yeah. And it's almost like you cease to become, I don't, I could use the word important, mm-hmm. but I, I'm tempted to use the word relevant, yeah. but, but you, your point's well taken. And I can appreciate this as a business owner mm-hmm. that whenever you own a business, really regardless of its size, you have around you this this galaxy of people mm-hmm. who who regularly come to you and interact with you and and for whom you are important in various ways. It's your world. Yeah, whether it's suppliers, whether it's it's associates, whether it's clients or customers. I mean, there's it, organizations to which you make charitable contributions. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just this this whole large cluster of people of which you are the center in many ways to things that are important to them. And and suddenly when you retire, it's like, you know, you don't want to accuse them of tossing you aside, but you're no longer central to their lives. And and I'm, I'm sure they no longer contact you as much, if at all. And so here you are on the sidelines, even if you sold your business and got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Some people think, well, if I sell my business, I'll still have, I'll be getting this pot of money of some sort. And the pot can be small or large, but it's still a pot. It's not the same thing. No. I mean, when you, to, to simply have money invested in the stock market, for example, and getting a dividend check, that doesn't make you relevant to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I can see how psychological, it's almost- It can be devastating, I think, psychologically. Yeah. So how do you, how do you explain this to clients, prepare them? Mm-hmm. Give me, tell us what the conversations are. Yeah, so often I'm brought in when uh, clients seem to be bumping up against some sort of intractable problem. They just don't know how to navigate through. And many times it's a uh, tangible problem that you can see, uh, like a succession event, let's say, or an exit event of a business. So when you say succession event, say that in lay language. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So succession, uh, typically the distinction between succession and exit Although succession is really a specific subset of an exit because anytime a business owner is leaving their business, it's an exit. The exit could be a sale to a outside party or it could be a sale to a family member or it could be 
giving the business or a combination of those to a family member. It could be a death. Yes, absolutely. It could be that as well. Yeah. And so really a lot of times there are softer issues like what we're talking about that undergird those tangible issues that everybody can see. And so you can work with somebody, you know, through all the legal, through all the accounting, through all the tax issues and have a plan that looks great on paper. But then you get to signing or you keep approaching signing and the owner continues to stall or find things wrong with the documents. Resisting. Absolutely. And they're not even necessarily conscious of why they're doing it. It just doesn't feel right. Well, It's scary. It's scary. Uh, If if it's – you get this one shot at it, Mm -hmm. you know, so you've worked all those decades building that business and you have one shot at this. Mm -hmm. And if you screw up, you could change the quality of your life as well as your family's lives, Mm -hmm. you know, for – I'll use the word generations, yeah. at least a generation. Yes. Um, so I can see how there's this this angst and indecision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you that's very common. It is, yeah. And I think uh, I heard it put this way once, so it's not an original thought, but I do think there's some truth to it that to many people, whether they're business owners or executives or whatever the case may be, retirement sounds like death. It feels mm-hmm. like death. So it's like, what happens after this? This is what I've known for a preponderance of my life working, you know, so what does that look like next? And so to really put those things out on the table and just say, hey, there's no right or wrong answer. There's nothing wrong with how you're feeling, but let's at least identify it and put it out here on the table, you know, what we're working with so that we can pay attention to this and say, well, if this is always going to be an anchor that's going to keep this from going on, then we just need to plan differently. And we'll say, you're going to be in here until you can no longer be here, either mentally or physically, or you die. And that's fine. We'll work the plan that way. But just to put it out there and let them know, hey, it's okay to feel the way you feel. And then work from there and say, well, what do you really want to do now that we've all identified what some of these resistors are? So are you often meeting with other family members in this conversation? I'm thinking that a son or daughter may be nudging dad and not in a unhealthy or in a self-interested way, mm-hmm. but they may be nudging dad to do this and dad is, you know, digging his heels in. Not well, I say dad, out. could be mom. Absolutely. But. Absolutely. It could be both. But yes, ap- many times it is the next generation coming up. And because they've been invited into the business They've helped grow the business. They've been told, hey, this business is going to be something either you buy from me or I give to you at some point, and it's just not happening. That date has come and gone, and that date continues to move on and move on. And so there is some frustration, and it starts to build some resentments, and both from the child's standpoint as well as the parent's standpoint because they're, you know, look at everything that I've invited you into, and you're giving me this kind of attitude about this. And so, again, it's – there's no right or wrong about how somebody feels about it. It's just putting it out there so that we can have these conversations. And so process-wise, yeah, oftentimes I'll meet with the business owner separately, with the business owner and their spouse, with the children separately, each of the children separately. And a lot of it is just letting giving, letting them give voice to what's going on within them emotionally, with the family dynamics, because uh, a lot of it can play off those dynamics that – have existed their whole lives, you know, and so understanding what some of these dynamics are. So again, not to try to solve it, but just to make everybody aware of here's what we're dealing with. So now that we have all this information, 
what's the best way to solve this and navigate through to where everybody's happy. And I imagine it gets even more complicated when you have the children who are not agreeing. Yes. One's mm-hmm. maybe siding with dad. One's maybe, you know, not agreeing with dad. And, mm-hmm. and it might be, I bet it commonly is that one child is going to be involved in the business and so has a great deal of interest. The other child, I would think it'd be more, less likely that you'd have all your kids who are going to be engaged. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that one that's not engaged is a little less concerned about the transition happening immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, and sometimes uh, a friend of mine called it uh, socialized capitalism because just because you have the blood running through your vein or the last name, that that qualifies you to be in the business. And so sometimes you have people very comfortable just sitting in an underperforming slot just waiting for the day that they're going to get, you know, 50% of the business. And that can be unhealthy on, you know, so many levels, especially if there's another child, to your point, Jill, that's you know, really working hard, really owns the business in their heart and is putting everything into it. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of family dynamics that can arise from that. Yeah, you see that a lot in in litigation. Like Mm -hmm. Tucker Allen, you know, is more than once had a client where there's, you know, there's this expectation at death. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the kids are informed. Usually that's a good idea to have that meeting and so that they know what the estate planning is. Beforehand. Beforehand. Yeah. Sometimes clients, though, just can't bring themselves to do it. So, you know, they'll just say to their estate planning lawyer, look, let's, let's you know, deal with it later. Let's mm-hmm. be sure we've dealt with it in the documents and, and they don't worry about those interpersonal uh, factors. And then when there's a death, there's a lot of disappointment, like that child right. you're describing that really isn't equipped to run it maybe didn't invest the time and effort in it, but has an expectation. Mm-hmm. So that often results in litigation, and, and more often than not, it can be handled if if there were some direct conversations. Mm-hmm. But I think parents hate to have those. So uh, how often do you have as a solution to this client who's aging and who in part wants to move on to those recreational dreams that perhaps he and his spouse had mm-hmm. for decades, but another part is wanting to stay involved. How often is it that they try to keep a foot in both, and and is that does it work? Yeah, with a pretty high degree of frequency, it works when the definition of what their role and responsibility will be going forward is understood and accepted by all the parties. And so I've seen places where it works very well. Uh, one client, um, the gentleman who had built the company, had you know took all the risk to build it. Um, it was his identity. So he stayed active in the associations. So he's continued to be the face of the company with the people he knew in some of the trade associations. Um, he held an office or he kept an office at the at the uh, place and they had a uh, showroom there at the place of business as well. So he would oftentimes talk to people that were coming to visit the showroom and just, you know, then pass them off to the salesperson. But his his roles were well-defined and everybody accepted that. And and he didn't try to step into son or daughter's role in the business. And so it worked That's very well. Hard. Yeah, it that, worked very well. Yeah, I to me, that seems so reasonable. Yeah. Um, now, I've not been in this position where I'm in his role mm-hmm. and I'm thinking that my child or children are making some bad decisions with the business. Mm-hmm. 
But I, I know what's right. And what's right is that unless they're just doing something totally suicidal, right. meaning just driving right. it, driving it off a cliff, mm-hmm. unless unless it's that degree of disagreement, you know, for that guy to be able to come in mm-hmm. and be there, which I think sounds like a like a very um, satisfying compromise. Mm-hmm. I've often found that those guys simply are not willing to keep their hands off the steering wheel. Right. They won't sit comfortably in the passenger seat. Right. I'm not saying it was perfect, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was one of the best I've seen. But he also uh, was involved in some other things outside the business, like an investment club that he was very involved in. And, you know, so he and his, his faith uh, dictated involvement in other things. And so um, he definitely had interests outside, which he allowed to blossom more as he pulled back from the business more. And let me let me ask the follow up on income. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, some people assume when you're talking of people who don't own businesses more commonly assume that when you're talking about businesses that you're always talking about, or we are always talking about people who have lots of money. Mm-hmm. So, so income for purposes of lifestyle and retirement, they're assuming is really not an issue. This is really about control and and family dynamics, et cetera. And and for for some businesses, it is, especially mm-hmm. larger businesses. But I'll bet that a lot of your clients, and certainly a number of the people who watch this show, some of them would fall in a category of being a small business where mm-hmm. where there is a going concern value, mm-hmm. and they have a child, let's assume, who has an interest in the business, so they don't want to sell it. Mm-hmm. But they're concerned about you know, they're used to getting the salary. And for lawyers and doctors, this is notorious. Mm-hmm. Um, Cordell and Cordell is a little different because it's, it operates more like a traditional business. But, but traditional law firms and businesses and, and, and medical practices, you know, they are used to having a good lifestyle based upon getting, you know, 400000 a year income, mm-hmm. 500000 a year. Choose your number. But mm-hmm. it's a, some are making a million a year. Mm-hmm. And that's great. But the problem with that quote unquote business is that when you walk away from it, you're no longer getting a check. Mm-hmm. And so some people think when they see a an eighty five year old doctor or an eighty five year old lawyer, <laughs> they, they they think, boy, is that person devoted mm-hmm. to their career? Uh, I would say not so. Devoted would, to that paycheck. <laughs> I would say almost without exception. There are exceptions, mm-hmm. but uh, the vast majority are people who've lived a high lifestyle their whole lives. Mm-hmm. You know, they graduated med school and they mm-hmm. thought, I'm a doctor, I need to join a country club. Mm-hmm. And and from there, you know, that same lifestyle went on. So I think with business owners, it's a little less like that, meaning that there is a business mm-hmm. that can be sold. But if they're not selling it, mm-hmm. then they have a child who's expecting to get a salary from it. Mm-hmm. So where is there enough money to go around for this this dad or this parent will mm-hmm. assume who is making. We'll grab a big number, five hundred thousand a year, mm-hmm. and that's their lifestyle. And right. they don't want to live on hundred thousand right. a year. After, right. No. Uh, now some people are thinking they should be happy with hundred thousand right. a year. <laughs> Maybe they should. But the point is, how do you deal with that issue with clients having enough money mm-hmm. and still being able to hand off the business? Yeah, that's a great question. And so that's where the basics of financial planning, just the blocking and tackling of doing some analysis, because it is astounding how much people think they really need. But when you break it down and say, okay, 
You know, what are your core expenses? What do you need to keep the lights on? And then what are your discretionary expenses, the country club, whatever the case may be? And then you model some of that out with a probability analysis. You can say, well, actually, you only need X number of dollars a year growing with inflation and your portfolio only needs to return X percent in order for you to never run out of money. And so they can be very liberating for people just to understand where they begin from. And then specifically, sometimes... You know, a business is in a building, let's say, and if they're conjoined under the same umbrella, we'll separate the building from the business and we'll set up a rent, you know. And, of course, it has to stay within market parameters, what's a reasonable rent for this space. But that can be a great way for the business owner exiting to still get an income stream for the rest of their lives because the tenant will always be there. They need this building and by oftentimes by the time the owner is retiring that building's paid off you know so there are some other things we can do to release some of that capital from there if we need to as well um, another thing is saying we're going to do seller financing you know and so instead of having an income stream it really becomes well the purchaser is paying, paying it for off, the business but it's still the cash flow is still there you know and mm -hmm. so to your point about the encumbrance of paying that, but also having a salary for the child in there, you know, oftentimes you have to get a little more creative, but you can also have this purchasing child potentially go and get a, you know, SBA loan for a part of it and the rest of it is seller financed. And so there's so many different tools and structures you can put in place to navigate that. that that's a good example. <clears throat> uh, I mean, the, the suggestion you had where, you know, some of it is self-financed mm -hmm. and then, but not all of it, right. meaning that you can get a loan with SBA or, or another lender. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you put those those sources of income together and it's enough to provide the quality of life. And and I guess some of these business people, entrepreneurs being what they are, they may want to go on and do something else that they think they don't tend to work as hard as my guess. I hope. I hope that their goal is to slow down and do something where they spend more time recreationally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, entrepreneurs tend to have this serial bug mm -hmm. that, that do you commonly have it come up that, you know, I'm going to start this little such and such business. Mm -hmm. I don't know what an example would be, but mm -hmm. they don't imagine it being big, mm -hmm. but they think it'll generate a little bit of income. Mm -hmm. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah. And then uh, that plan cl collides with reality and they're like, oh, I don't know that I really want to. Oftentimes, you yeah. know, it's an unfulfilled, but a lot of times it's just that genesis they need to get through that transition gate from being the business owner of this to, well, I will have purpose. I will do this next. And kind of going back to that purpose, you know, before you can figure out what's next, you have to figure out what's now, which is really who am I as a person and what drives me? What are my values? And I've found that to be a pretty constructive conversation where you have the owners and just use a values inventory, you have them identify what their values are and say, okay, these are how these have manifested your whole life in this business. Mm -hmm. How do we manifest those values somewhere else now? So tell me how you do that. What What is the process? Um, you include the family mm -hmm. and you have a tool, some sort of document or a, a checklist. Tell me how you 
what questions would be asked, for example. Yeah, so there's inventory. an actual uh, inventory. It's called a values inventory. And there's so many different values, you know, like DISC is for personality. Yeah. There's equivalency in values inventories out there as well. There's a, there are a myriad of them. The particular one I use is called a values inventory, just basic. And they answer, you know, 128 questions they go through. But really what it does is it breaks the values down into, here's the, think of it as a tree. So the values of the trunk are the ones I can identify, I see within myself then the ones in the upper foliage are the ones I'm aspiring to. I really want to move towards those values. And then there's the one at the root level, and those are really the most determinative because— It's foundational. Yes, and, and many times they're hidden. So somebody doesn't know why they're feeling conflict or why they're feeling a certain way about something they're confronting. Well, if you can look at, oh, well, it's impinging on this particular root value. What's an example of root, of those roots? Yeah, and so— um, you know, I think for like I'm thinking of a, of a recent one. Uh, family was one of the was one of the root uh, values of this person. I mean, they they had some of it that they were visible of and seeing it manifest, but it was really more this legacy family type of value. And so, part of the conversation about moving the business on was a concern about well, I know my kids, I raised them, you know, they're good kids now, but I've also seen the irresponsible things that they've done over their lives. Right. And so I want this business to also benefit grandkids, maybe great grandkids. And so some of the decisions we were making were threatening some of that legacy family value that this per particular person had. And so once we were able to identify, oh, this is where this is coming from, it gave us a new track, a new thing to focus on to make sure the estate documents were in place correctly, the family governance documents were in place correctly, so that the next generation was more custodial of these assets versus consumptive, and so that it could go on to the next generation and that next generation. And then it really freed up the conversation, freed up the planning, freed up the process. Daryl, do you ever have um, situations where the client, the business owner, realizes that their children would not do well carrying on the family business and might want to have some outside person in the family mm -hmm. or outside of their family take it over. I mean, I can imagine that could get very, very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And the mm -hmm. one particular one I'm thinking of uh, most recently was a tech company. And there were certainly uh, of the children involved and every child was involved. There were at least two that were extremely well suited for their roles within the business. But neither of them were CEO. CEO material. Yeah. And so to talk to the family, a very frank conversation about, well, in order for this asset to keep providing what it does for everybody that's in the business, plus generations to come, plus the exiting owner, we need to bring in a professional CEO. And so it took a while and it took very direct, to your point, Joe, conversations with everybody. But eventually everybody was able to get aligned and say, okay, this makes sense. And, you know, you would expect it to be improbable mm -hmm. um, that somebody who is <clears throat> a great CEO would have children that would be a great CEO. Mm -hmm. Or put differently, that his children, he or his or her children, would be better than any alternative available in the marketplace mm -hmm. is kind of improbable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that skill set, which is a – it's a it's like a recipe that has lots of ingredients 
And you can't be sure, though, when you eat it, exactly what what is the combination. But you know mm-hmm. it's good, mm-hmm. so you don't know exactly. And I think that's <clears throat> when you talk about that basket of talents that come together for a successful CEO, I think you can identify some of the ingredients. I, I You know, there are certain things you know, oh, that person has to be able to do this, they have to be able to do that, et cetera. But, but in terms of coming up with a precise formula or recipe for that person, it's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. But you do know when you taste it when it's good, and you mm-hmm. know that when somebody's a CEO, you see it, you see how effective they are in assuring that that the company achieves its financial goals, that you don't have lots of turnover. I mean, to pull off all those dimensions of a successful business is really tough. And and I know people resent the amount of money that that CEOs get paid a ton of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to the rest of the people in the company. Right. I mean, at the lower level as well as obviously at what we what we read about in the Wall Street Journal. But but you know, it 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 is that single person. It's the single seat in the building where all responsibility rests. Mm-hmm. And so you. You want somebody that you think, well, if I put that person in that chair, then every other person in the building, in the organization, it'll all go right. Not perfectly, but it'll go right, mm-hmm. and um, and I'll have a successful business. So with children, I can see where it regularly <clears throat> come up that a child of a founder um, may have the expectation that, well, you know, I inherit things from my parents, and I should inherit this position. Yes, mm-hmm. this leadership. Th- this mm-hmm. chair. Mm-hmm. And I just think the probability would be that often that person is not the right person for that chair. Mm-hmm. So uh, when when children are included in these conversations, are they very vocal about what their goals are, or do they feel that they need to sit quietly in these meetings? What's your read on the kids in these conversations? That's frankly why... I have those conversations one-on-one with everybody that's going to be sitting in the room and at the table before we get in there. Uh, because part of what I want them to be able to understand about themselves is what they're bringing to that table and what their notions are about their capabilities versus what maybe dad's or mom's notions are about their capabilities. And so, But their notions about their capabilities may not be dad's notions of their capability. Exactly. Yeah. And it could be mismatched in both directions, you know, and, and in either way, either they are much more qualified than parent is giving them credit for or vice versa. And so back to the one, uh, the one family I'm thinking of, when they brought the CEO in, even just for the interview process, it became so apparent, readily apparent, that there was much more experience and qualifications than the children and even more than the parent. And so that was... You know, everybody had to park their egos to the side because parent was like, well, I, I built this company. This is a great company. But then to see somebody who's coming in that has a lot more going on and potentially could make the company even more valuable. And that was what they experienced once they allowed that person to come in. So, But it is – it still comes back to your point, just getting people a reality – I don't want to say a reality check, but a realistic perspective of who they are where they are in the company as a critical part of the company, but to what level, and then really pulling back and saying, you know what, the company is just one more item on this family's balance sheet. It's not the only thing. And so for this company to do well, it'll it'll raise all the boats. Everybody will do well. So uh, let's talk about that for a second, about the balance sheet mm-hmm. of an entrepreneur or a business owner, is that I would assume that 
80% of the assets on their balance sheet would be in the business. I'm just guessing that that's common or more. Mm-hmm. Is that what you see? Yeah. And and frankly, back to, you know, why the focus on, on business owners, most people that are in the profession of planning, financial planning or asset management, do not work with business owners because if a business owner has a free dollar, it's going to go back in the business. And so they don't know how to monetize that relationship because most advisors work with assets under management. And so to that point, and your point is that when I have a free dollar as a business owner, I know how best to deploy that and I know how I can get the most out of that versus turning it over to somebody to put it in somebody else's company. And so, yes, oftentimes a preponderance of their assets are in that one place. What most of them have realized over the years is they need to diversify either into a second business or a third business or real estate. But most of the time, it's still something that they control. It's not something like putting money into the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have it to where one of your clients, the business owner, it's their dream for their company to continue on generation after generation, but none of the kids want the business? Mm-hmm. And how do you huh. resolve that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And we've uh, we've still found familial ways to do that. Maybe it's a cousin, you know, or, ne- you know, a nephew. Or, I'm sorry, it'd be a nephew of the owner, a cousin of the next generation. Uh, we've had that be the case. Uh, again, it comes back to then if nobody is there to take up that next generation or take the next generation to run the business, is really talking about how do we reframe the idea of this business in the founder's mind to say, yes, it can live on. Um, I was just having coffee last week with a gentleman who worked, not a child of the owner, but worked in the business with the owner for 25 years. And the business owner had three kids. None of them wanted to take over the business, but he really felt like this person that had been his right-hand person and 20 years his junior felt like a son to him. And so he did say, I want this business to live on. None of my kids want it. You're the person. You know, obviously you care about this business. You spent your whole career here. So he sold it to him. And it's been a great relationship because he still mentors the the employee and, that bought it. And because it probably wasn't practical for him to have that person simply hired and maybe given an ownership interest, but keeping right. the majority interest in the family. Yes. And because with a small business, there's a larger responsibility on the part of the owners to to be a very engaged board of directors. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and it, it requires time and attention. So even if they're not employed in the business, simply being owners, mm-hmm. it's not like being owner of Ford Motors where you just, you can choose to, you know, to not think about it mm-hmm. and let others do everything. They're really effectively in the position of, of critical board members, yeah. right, with a closely held company. Yeah, and it can get, even that can get fairly convoluted. There's a, a local company, and they're not clients of mine, but I know the owner, and seven generations deep into the business, and you have um, owners that live in other countries that you know want to be wow. board members and participate, but they have no clue how the business is operating or how it's working or what would be best for the business. And so... They've been through a process recently to buy out, you know, some of the people that wouldn't add to by sitting on the board. And so um, I know that wasn't exactly what you were speaking to, but those situations occur, you know, with some frequency where you do have people that would add value being on the board and then you have people that wouldn't. And so, again, it's 
repositioning that business to say, just because this was so dominant in our world growing up, it doesn't mean that that specific asset is the most important thing. It is an asset on this entire balance sheet of this family. Let's pull back and as a family, let's say, well, what do we want to do with all of our wealth? You know, how does this look? And the business just happens to be one of those things that fills out the balance sheet. Yeah, I completely get that point that Jill raised. And really, it probably is the more common phenomenon, isn't it? Where where children are raised, are raised around this business, um, they may have ceased to become real impressed, meaning mm-hmm. that they just take it for granted. Right, right. And, mm-hmm. and so when they go into careers, they're looking for validation in other places because that the business seems to to just not provide that for them, that luster, because of familiarity mm-hmm. to a large extent and the fact that it's given to them. Now, again, we know, as we've talked about earlier in our conversation, a lot of kids, it's the opposite. It's a fight over the business. But but I'm glad we're talking about the fact that a lot of kids just don't want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They have yeah. their other dreams. Mm-hmm. They, they want to find their own way. Especially in the 21st century. Yes. There was a time when they didn't have other real options for the most part. But I do think that that that's a phenomenon. I think that I have have a daughter who is – she's a lawyer. She uh, graduated from the University of Chicago Law School, and she's clerking for a federal judge now and a federal appellate judge. And and after she leaves there, she's probably – going to go with a large firm in Chicago. So, you know, my thought that my daughter would think that Cordell and Cordell, for example, is the center of the universe, Mm -hmm. you know, her, you know, her, maybe someday, Mm -hmm. but the point is her interests are in other areas. Then I have another daughter who's in medical school. So obviously there's no place for her at Cordell and Cordell. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's easy to, to make assumptions that your kids are going to want to be in the business. Mm -hmm. And then you find yeah. maybe not. So in those cases, it probably is more likely a sell then, right? Yeah, and, and just taking one step back to what you were talking about with the children, that was my experience. And uh, one of the greatest gifts that my dad gave to me with his construction company is once I graduated from college with a degree in business, he said, come back and work with me and we'll grow this business and this is what it'll look like and we'll work together for this period of time. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. I'll sell this business and I'll be done. And that was one of the greatest gifts he gave me rather than conscripting me to saying, oh, you're going to take over this business and making me feel this obligation to the family to keep running the business. He allowed me to walk my own path, you know, and, and what a gift, you know, that right. became. So Yeah, yeah. You don't wonder if you had gone in and worked on the business, why you have sold it for a hundred million. <laughs> it, you know, uh, from starting it, I think it was age seven when I started picking shingles up off the uh, lawn when they'd tear the roof, roof off, off uh-huh. back yeah. before they would wheelbarrow it all to a dumpster. They used to just throw it on the ground. That was my I've job. Seen so, those. Uh-huh. so I was like, no, I, I've had enough construction. Uh-huh. But that's a tough field. And you yeah. talk about getting uh, buffeted. Yes, you know, through a con- economic change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Construction is oh, wow. notorious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, your uh, clients, what type of businesses do they own? Yeah, um, it is a, it's a mix. Um, so I do have service businesses, some distribution businesses. 
uh, retail. Right now, I don't have any manufacturers. Um, it's not because I'm avoiding that. It's just I don't happen to have any clients that have that right now. Uh, so it really doesn't matter um, what the business, the nature of the business is. So many of the issues are universal you know, right. when it comes to family sure. and when it comes to business. So do you play a role, though, in helping them figure out how to sell the business? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of – I went back uh, – Gosh, I guess it was maybe seven years ago now and got my certified exit planning advisor designation. And the main reason I did it is even though I was familiar with, you know, the things that we had done over the years, I wanted to sharpen my skills on it. And so it was much more about the education than the designation. Um, and You're so, a certified financial planner. As well. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so a lot of it is just knowing what you're dealing with when it comes to business transaction. I would not say I'm the investment banker. Many times if it's big enough, we'll get somebody else involved. And so uh, often in my previous business partner, and I always talked about this, you know, being the librarian, not the library. I don't need to know the contents of every book. I just need to know which book we need and where to right. find it. And so that's often when it comes to that, you know, exit. If we're selling it out in the marketplace, we need to get people that are very familiar with, you know, what the multiples of EBITDA are right now and what we can get for this type of business. What do we need to do to build it up? You know, and then a lot of times that execution will help get involved in that to make sure that we're pulling all the right levers, looking as good as we can before we go to market. And trying to get, I guess, a payout where you can minimize the tax hit. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I suspect that that's going to be more commonly the solution for people who are retiring now is that they're going to be looking at some sort of sale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a great economy for that for the last several years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and even uh, with the sale within the family, it's psychologically beneficial to have it be a sale versus a gift Gift. just because then parent is like, oh, I am getting something of value for all my years of working on this. And, oh, I did sell it, so I really do need to take my hands off it. And child is saying, yeah, I bought this. This is mine. And that's often a separator too to figure out which child really wants to be in the business and which doesn't. If they have to go get a loan and if they have to go and now take this on, take this debt on – convince their spouse it's a good idea to take this on. They're all in. Is that typically the way it's done? Well, it's not typical. That's a lot of times what I encourage with my clients. And and, and the main reason I do it is because of the psychological piece. And they can still do a combination of gifting or balloon gift at the end. But I still tell every client, make them go get a loan because you will have a different level of commitment to this purchase and to this business being a going concern over if you just gifted. It sounds like you not only play the role of certified financial planner, but also of a psychologist, yeah. you know? I well, mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's that's pretty much Yeah, there has to it. be a big counseling factor. Yeah, and, I mean. You know, counseling and. When you're dealing with families and, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, for me, uh, part of the reason I can relate is because I grew up in it. And I gave that, mm-hmm. you know, as you talked about, you know, that business like you were talking about with your kids, it's like, oh, I grew up with it, you know, whatever the case may be. But again, it's come to roost for me to just understand there are things that I think about in ways I think that I never would have if I hadn't have grown up in a business. Right. And so some of those concerns that are unsaid, I know they're bubbling there under the surface and I see how they're manifesting. So it's pretty simple to just say, hey, could this be why we're reacting this way? And then they'll be like, 
oh, yeah, yeah, that is it. And so then to be able to get that all out there and just talk through it because, you know, especially business owners, they're able to make a decision. They're able to take information and decide what is next. Sometimes the reason they can't make these decisions is because they're blind to the information that's right there in front of them. Yeah, and and one thing we should also <clears throat> mention, though you mentioned a few minutes ago, but I don't want our viewers to miss the fact that one of the common avenues, I guess, is allowing employees or some employment group mm -hmm. to acquire. The advantage, of course, is that they know the business and they, they've been running the business to some extent. Mm -hmm. And so it's really attractive if you can put together a buyout yeah. based on, you know, the employees. And I think that some of the other options, though, when you think about it, that it still it still leaves a challenge for the business owner to be able to have enough income to maintain their, their standard of living. And and it, it seemed to me that, that that would drive a lot of the discussion is being able to assure that they're paid in such a way so that the employees or a third party has got to be willing to pay out at a pace that allows the, the same standard of living. As you point out, you can reduce costs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I've never been particularly sold on that idea, mm -hmm. which I know is conventional wisdom mm -hmm. and doubtlessly in part true that that your cost of living go down when you retire. Mm -hmm. Because if people do choose to to not do a lot of things they were doing before, mm -hmm. then I can see how those things would go down. But my idea of retirement is not ceasing to be active. Right. It's becoming active right. in mm -hmm. new ways. and. Mm -hmm. And often less less inexpensive ways. Mm -hmm. So it's never attracted much of my attention, the conversation about ways I can reduce my cost of living sure. when I retire. Yep. My goal is to be able to fund those things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that business owners really struggle with that issue. Is that is that is that you're saying that's what you found? Yeah, and I, I do think you come to that inflection point where you do the analysis and say, well, in order to sell this business to produce the kind of life income to support the lifestyle I want, it would have to be 10 times EBITDA. And right now, my type of businesses, even the best ones, are trading at four times. Well, there's no way you're going to sell then. What you're going to do then is potentially consider bringing in professional management and hanging on to the business you know, for the rest of your life because you can still get the dividends from the business. Sure. You can still get the income from the business. And now you have somebody with their hands on the wheel running it and you're incenting them to think like an owner, to make the business continue to thrive and grow. And yet you can still have that income stream coming from it. So a lot of times, again, it's just the analysis to say, well, what makes sense in this situation? Yeah, yeah. It's a spectrum of possibilities yeah, rather than, you know, a binary of either either you sell the business or you don't. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that for many people that would be attractive to be able to continue to own, mm -hmm. to bonus generously some mm -hmm. key people mm -hmm. that you trust mm -hmm. and be able to spend a lot more time in Florida mm -hmm. still recognizing that there's a need to participate periodically, mm -hmm. uh, but not in the same way. Mm -hmm. One thing that I want to mention before we wrap up is um, a point that that uh, you made reference to a while ago, but I'm not sure a lot of people got the significance of that. Part of the problem with getting traditional financial planners, and I want you to elaborate on this, is that 
they're based on the amount of cash you have because, as you said, they're paid as a percentage of – it's called assets under management. So they're looking for liquid money, money that they can take and put in the stock market or whatever because based on that number, that's the way they're paid. So it may be a half a percent. It may be 1%, for example. So if you have you know, a lot of good financial planners – are people who are still wanting a million dollars cash at least. And cash meaning not real estate. You could own $20 million in real estate. That's no help to the average estate planner. They can't make a living off that. So not interested. They're interested in you're having at least a million dollars sitting in cash so that then they get to invest it and then they get to take a fee or draw like a half a percent or 1%. That's the way they make their money. I'm not saying there's anything unethical about it. I'm just saying that it doesn't fit the profile of a lot of people who have a lot of assets, mm-hmm. is that they don't have liquid money sitting around. They may, as These examples we've been talking about today, where you have maybe a $10 million business, that's 80% of your balance sheet, mm-hmm. but that's not going to get you the assistance of your average financial planner. Now, let me hurry to add that that's not a bad thing, I guess. And the reason it's not is that that person, in fact, would not know the answer to these questions mm-hmm. because what they know how to do is to take your money and and hand it over to the, whoever their money manager is with their firm, probably in Manhattan, and the, they're paid something for that, which which they should be paid something. But they don't know about how a business would be sold. They know nothing about how business would operate. It's entirely beyond their their world, mm-hmm. their investment world. Their investment world is passive investments on the New York Stock Exchange uh, or the American Stock Exchange. You know, Dow, S and P. That's that's their world. Mm-hmm. Is stocks that you that are talked about on CNBC or on Fox Business. They don't. It's an entirely foreign thing to find somebody who can talk to you about if you're a business owner that can talk to you about the complexities of a sale and how that goes about or the family dynamics in succession. People people need to understand that when you're looking for a financial planner, um, and this is not an effort to to endorse you, though I you know you're here because we were impressed with you, but but my purpose in saying this is not for your benefit, but it's it's to say that I, don't, I want people watching the show to not think that an estate planner, your average estate planner, is equipped to talk to somebody about selling a business. They have no clue. In fairness to them, they wouldn't have come across it. They're used to dealing with a list of stocks that are given to them by their analyst in their L.A. or their New York office. People need to hear this or they don't know. They don't know. They think they can pick up the phone and call an average certified financial planner and get information. Comment on this. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly do not want to uh, take anything away from the people who that's their businesses to manage money because they fulfill an extremely important purpose and role in our society. Um, For me, though, personally, I absolutely agree that most people in the financial services profession don't know the intricacies of how to help a business owner just because there's so many things that they're not paid to pay attention to when it comes to a business owner's life. And so 
and again, that's just a different way that I run my business is to charge a fee for my intellectual capital. And so for your services. Yeah. And so it's 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 not it depends upon how much your how big your balance sheet is. It's no, what are we working on? What are we tackling? And so it just changes the conversation and it puts me on the same side of the table with the client as we're looking out there into the world and saying, okay, how are we going to navigate this? But again, I think there's a, a place for each, but to to your point, to be aware what you're hiring, what capabilities you're hiring when you do hire somebody in this profession, that's very important. Yeah, and it's it's one of the key things that I want people to walk away from this conversation, whether they, they use you or someone else, is I want them to, to not think that they can go to the same people, that people who have had W-2 jobs their whole careers, you know, where they've they've saved money. They may have a ton of money, but it's a whole different conversation than dealing with somebody who owns a business. Right. It's just, it, it would be very foreign. Mm-hmm. And it's important to pick somebody who has familiarity with planning as it relates to business owners. And that includes small businesses as well as medium and large. I know that our audience is well, whether or not it's our audience, there's a lot larger number of small business owners than medium and large, but there are a lot of common denominators Mm -hmm. among all those. And I know this personally, incidentally. So if I'm dwelling on this topic a little bit, it's because I've experienced it personally. Uh, The sort of people that I go to for financial advice, I found out a long time ago that it's not those people who talk to those who uh, have high-paying W-2 jobs. Um, I could learn things from, don't get me wrong, but but I, I wanted to deal with, with lawyers and other professionals who who are used to dealing with business owners because it's a whole different conversation. I just hadn't met anybody who was who did financial planning and focused it just on business owners. That's, that's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, it's... Uh, it's taken me a career to evolve to this place, uh, certainly, because when I started, this wasn't the focus. But uh, in since 2017, I determined this is going to be my singular focus, and uh, it brings me the greatest purpose. You know, when we talk about purpose, I identified that as mine, yeah. and how a business can be such a wonderful blessing to a family, or it can tear a family apart. And if there's anything I can do to influence it towards the former, that's what I want to do, and that's my purpose. So. Mm-hmm. It does have this unique capacity to cause conflict in a family, mm-hmm. more so than um, a bank accounts or brokerage accounts, because mm-hmm. those. Yeah. I mean, you can argue about how they're going to be divided, but they're not going to get destroyed in the process, mm-hmm. probably. Whereas with a business, it's like this fragile thing, this this construct that that is fragile. I mean, if you think about the nature of an organiz- any organization, mm-hmm. but especially small businesses, is that you have this organization of people and practices and processes that, that are, can be ephemeral. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can dissipate if it's neglected, if, yeah. if you fail to exercise the fundamental skills that got it where it was, it collapses. It's not one of these things like a pyramid where you build it. And you come back and look at it 2,000 years later, it looks pretty much like it did. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this fragile thing that is very vulnerable to return to dust. 
and and you get a family conflict going on in which people's attentions are turned away and and um yeah. maybe that you have two different people in the organization heaven forbid that are at war trying to run it so businesses are very very vulnerable to to losing value very fast when there's not a succession plan mm-hmm. and and a lot faster than than a, your typical argument over assets you know such as bank accounts and and those very true those liquid assets anyway you can tell i like this topic <laughs> i i get it i get it and and i've I, i'll i'm yet to walk some of the road that you describe but i know that it's information that our clients or our viewers rather mm-hmm. need so um daryl and it's pronounced tegmeyer daryl tegmeyer mm-hmm. with epoch epoch family wealth yeah mm-hmm. epoch family wealth yep. so um good stuff we'll have to circle back yep. talk more about this excellent this has been another episode of life's third act till next time take care you've been listening to life's third act a podcast for thriving in retirement Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.